Hello, and welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange, a series of conversations with the artists, labels, and promoters who are shaping the electronic music landscape. I'm Jordan Rothline, and I'm the tech editor at Resident Advisor. It's difficult to imagine how electronic music would sound today without Ableton Live. Where most music software before it basically digitized the workflow of a traditional recording studio, Live envisioned making music as you only could on a computer. Its major innovation was the way it conceptualized time. You could sync all of your musical material through a process called warping, and individual musical events, called clips, could be rearranged on the fly. It made Live, now in its ninth version, popular not only with producers, but with DJs and live performers as well. The boundaries between these three have never been hazier. A fact Gerhard Bales, Ableton CEO, couldn't have imagined when he, his former Monolake bandmate Robert Henke, and their partner Bernd Rogendorf formed the company in 1999. I spoke to Bales in Berlin recently about the endless possibilities Live opened up, and how their latest product, a hardware device called Push, might help narrow them down. Around the time when you founded Ableton, uh, you were doing uh, some work in granular synthesis, which I, I've sort of always found really interesting. Granular synthesis, for those who don't know, you take a sound, you slice it up into tiny pieces, and then you can use those tiny pieces to create new sounds, uh, to expand the sound, to dig deeper into the sound. And I guess I thought it was interesting because that strikes me as being similar conceptually to what Ableton does, or can do, where you can take parts of a composition, cut it up into parts, rearrange it. How much of an influence do you think your studies in granular synthesis were on this software idea? It's funny that you make that link. It wouldn't have occurred to me, but I guess it makes sense. The literal translation of the granular work that I had the opportunity to do at college to what we did in, in Ableton is in the sound engine, you know. So one of the uh, interesting aspects of uh, granular resynthesis is that you can manipulate the flow of time and pitch independently, and that was a key feature from day one. Was that something that you were able to do around the time when when you were creating Ableton? Was that was that a really new concept? There was at the time a program called Acid by Sonic Foundry that could do this, and it was very impressive. And other than that, there was only academia and things that I was exposed to through academia and techniques and algorithms that were fascinating. Kind of take me back to the, to the beginning of Ableton, maybe the beginning of the idea for Ableton. How, how did you get started with the software? As always, there's a number of different traces that lead to something. And in this case, it was a musical trace where uh, my uh, musical partner at the time, Robert Henke of Mono Lake, and I were doing live shows that at the same time were our compositional work. Uh, 
there was no distinction. The music was made on the spot and later edited to become a record. And we found a lot of reasons to not like what was available to us at the time in terms of technology and also fixed some ourselves because we could program a little bit uh, through you know what we had learned and we then landed on a concept that I think Robert sketched in a max patch originally for one live show that somehow looked like wait a minute there's something more general to this than one patch for one show and that I think was the nucleus for the program and on the technical side of it it was a happy coincidence because I was lucky to meet a gentleman who is uh, far more intelligent than myself and very knowledgeable about coding and technology, Bernd Roggendorf. And with him, I was able to put this together. What was sort of the paradigm for music software uh, back when you were getting started? Uh, what, what were some of the tools that, that you had at your disposal and maybe why were they not really, really living up to, to what, what they could do? Everything at the time that you could get was in one way or another a descendant of the traditional recording studio, like reel-to-reel -reel tape translated to a computer. And that just to us made not much sense because we were not recording anything in the sense of here's the song, we've worked it out, now we go to the studio, pay a lot of rent, get it over with quick and walk out with uh, you know, a piece of tape. It was so not anywhere near what we were doing. We were rather using the technology to uh, arrive at the song in the first place, like building something that makes sounds. And while it makes sounds, we observe and tune and change and adapt and tweak. And then it makes different sound. And then that goes for a couple hours and maybe something interesting happens on the way. And then we edit and then we go into that material and find what we need. That was much more our method. And that's not to say that there's anything wrong with the programs at the time. We were heavy Pro Tools users and loved it. You know, I mean, for what it does, it uh, was a fantastic proposition and we valued it highly. What year was this when, when, when everything was starting to come together with Ableton? Jeez, we're talking about the late 90s. So this whole idea of being able to compose and, and kind of edit and, and bring sort of the entire recording process uh, to a place where you could do it in, in nonlinear fashion, was that sort of easier said than, than done at that time? Well, at the time, you were expecting to haul a rack of synth and effects units when you went to a show, and it was okay. It wasn't our biggest concern, but it was definitely foreseeable and on the horizon that one day you would need no more than a laptop. And, you know, I mean, it was easy to visualize what that reality would look like. And it was also fascinating to think, okay, once that's the case, what else could this box do for you? You know, also beyond the uh, traditional function of a studio uh, as in capturing a preconceived idea how could you make software that runs in this and that helps you in the idea generation in the first place and then also in performance 
I would imagine that creating a new digital audio workstation is quite an undertaking. Where do you even begin with something like that? Well, you know, we began teaching our colleagues programming because we started out with folks who in some of some of who could not program. We were just totally inspired to do it and we were not skilled at all in things like how to build a company, how to uh, build your technology stack and you know Bernd was a fantastic engineer I mean he really I think mastered this front to end but we were not uh, great at uh, business people in any at any stretch so we literally uh, started to hire the people that we liked most and taught them programming and then it went from there. Yeah, you say that they weren't they weren't programmers. Maybe they weren't traditionally people who would be creating computer software. What what was sort of the profile of those people who were involved in Ableton from the beginning? I will say you know, when you start out and you have nothing except uh, you know, fluffy idea, it's also the question of who do you attract? You attract people that are attracted to a fluffy idea that uh, you do your best to sell them. And I think it was people that caught on to the idea and could deal with the uncertainty of it and that were at a juncture in their lives where they would say, well, let's go for it, you know, typically very young. What was the, what was the initial pitch that, that you were giving people uh, about Ableton at that time? I think it was surprisingly close to what we actually ended up doing. That sometimes makes me wonder. I mean, really, when I look at our first business plans that we also sold to investors and so on, it really said about what was going to happen. It just contained a lot more. It said, so this is what's going to be the first step. And then, and then, and then. And we, uh, I think we had a timeline of like two years to reach all of that. And we look now at like the age, uh, what the the year 14 into the existence of the company. And I think we have achieved a little portion of it. <laughs> what were some of the initial challenges uh, with Ableton Live? I think initially the program had a interesting review. On the one hand, there were few people who were completely excited and totally got, got it and got on board and picked it up immediately and propelled it. I mean, we had fantastic early adopters. But the mainstream just did not get it. It was clearly an uh, incomprehensible proposition. And I remember, you know, sales guys desperate asking us, can you tell us something about how we can relate that to, the rea to, to these people, you know? And uh, we couldn't. It was really difficult. Because I think only in the last couple of years has it, uh, arrived at you know larger genres than electronic and different uh, scenes of people that you could work this way and the merits of this workflow have been have been understood and recognized. I think that's really in, due to the um, to the meeting of the electronic genres with non-electronic genres and this sort of changed everything. And somewhat out, out of our control. It's nothing that we made happen. It's something that happened. Hmm. Yeah, I'm curious who some of these, who some of these early adopters were. These, these people that you say from the get-go just totally understood it. There were a couple of people in press. 
that uh, like from the first demo on were completely hooked. And of course, artists like I, I recall, uh, you know, Akufen or Richie Harton or people like that were on very early, got it immediately and uh, helped us a great deal, of course. Yeah, you say that it took a while for sort of the, the mainstream to, to catch up, but really, it seems like by the middle of the 2000s, electronic music was, was totally on board. It totally made sense for people who were making electronic music. Um, I know you had said in a previous interview that, um, that Ableton was sort of looking, uh, or what, what you were looking for with the software was to sort of think about, you know, well, if everything is going to move into the laptop, what, what could that mean? What could that laptop do? Um, did, did you feel like, uh, sort of by the middle of the 2000s, when electronic music had, had really grabbed onto it, uh, was that sort of what you had envisioned from, from the beginning? It's always hard to predict how the arts evolve. I think it's much easier to predict how technology evolves, and that's already hard. So no, nobody could know. But I guess what was easy to foresee is that everyone's going to have a computer. They're always going to have it when they are on the go, so it's not a static location-based uh, work situation it's something they will have on travel on tour and so on and it will like accompany them you could you could totally foresee all this this was easy i think what happened artistically was not so easy to foresee but do you hear sort of the the influence of ableton in some in 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 music that's been made uh the the influence of being able to create music this way I think it's hard to discern exactly what comes from what. So I can rarely point at, you know, like a piece of music and say, oh, that was clearly made with our software. I don't think it is like this because it isn't so clearly conducive to one certain kind of music making or musical outcome. And luckily so, I mean, we would be sad if that was the case. I mean, we are, I guess, assessing our success by variety if a lot of different music comes out and lots of different people use it in different ways then we like it and that's what makes us proud one way that i guess i see the influence is in how much these formerly disparate uh types of music making you know studio production live performance djing uh, how much in the last number of years all of these things have have come together. Um, do you, do you, did that play into sort of your initial idea for for Ableton? This this idea that these separate things could become the same thing almost. That's a a, a level of foresight that I can't claim. Yeah, but I agree with uh, with the assessment. This is um, one of the main things that have happened that changed everything, and. It's a matter of accessibility, I think. A program like Live is sufficiently easy to pick up and also to, through investing a linear amount of work, giving you a, a proportional amount of reward. And it has made it relatively easy. I mean, it's all relative for people that are not way deep in technology to get into it. And you take DJs, or acoustic guitar, acoustic musicians that through this were exposed not only to the sort of 
tool-like potential of software, but also the musical exploratory, experimental, uh, you know, you don't know what you got before you go there type of thing. And I think that was wonderful in hindsight, that you could see so many people uh, experimenting as a consequence. It's interesting also that something has to be rather straightforward to invite to experiment people that are not in for the technology. And that's something we've learned. You're, you're talking about this sort of the experimental nature of the software. And I think that the work that you guys have done to bring uh, Max MSP sort of into the world really expands that. Uh, tell me about how you first came into contact with Max. We were long-time long time Max users. Just before anything about Ableton was even conceived, we used it extensively, and we made our own little music-making machines with this and loved it. And then through Ableton, we got to know the guys there and uh, talked them up and, you know, uh, became friendly. And I think it was really through early, I would almost say private uh, encounters that this idea popped up. It po also popped up very early, like I think even in the first, at the first meeting, this was something that we played, was an idea that we toyed with and then got a reality. There was, there was this sort of long-standing rumor or, or misconception that Ableton had even been programmed in Max with sort of a Max patch that had gotten out of control. <laughs> that, that's not true though, right? It's or not exactly true. No, it's not true. Uh, it's a beautiful idea though. And sometimes we wonder, maybe it would have been good this way, but it wasn't. And indeed what we did do is oftentimes prototype things, which you can do very quickly and uh, uh which is very helpful to do in, in Max. And and some of the effects that that have made it into uh, Ableton now, some of the devices that that run natively in Ableton are sort of descendants of Max patches, right? Yeah, I think a lot of the, I would say most of the early devices that were in life were Max patches before that, simply because Robert hacked them that way to find out what works and what doesn't, and then they were translated. Mm -hmm. And now, uh, you know, Max for Live uh, ships with Ableton Live Suite, and um, this has sort of become an integral part of kind of the way that Live works. Um, how aware of the sort of Max for Live community currently, uh, or as it's currently working, are you? What do you see going on there? It's fascinating. I think, roughly speaking, you can divide the work that happens in two parts. One is someone will for their own purpose or maybe even for another person's purpose, you know, like as a contractor, solve as a very specific problem, like for a given show that needs to run uh, at a given time and there's a specific issue there like in interfacing something complicated or what, they will put together a patch. That's the one half. And the other half is someone will make a device and they will do it so that other people can use it beyond their initial uh, application that they thought of. And then things become a little more like products. And there are some of these that we've picked up and did done something with, like now with Live9, we ship 
a couple of devices that really originated from the community. And we just uh, worked with the original authors to refine and put in, uh, you know, a bit of the last mile to make things polished and, 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 uh, and sleek. But I think there's a ton more out there that's just waiting to be, you know, brought to that level. And there is a lot of stuff, actually, that is already at this level. It's kind of amazing to see what happens there. Like, I mean, there's now very shiny and polished and beautiful patches that people make and that are self-contained, ready products. Uh, I know that uh, Robert Henke, your your partner, is sort of credited with, with being kind of the main technology guy at the company, sort of spearheading a lot of these uh, kind of musical technology, technological ideas, uh, many of which have come out through Max for Live. Um, I'm curious if if you've done much tinkering with Max for Live. Uh, are you much of a much of a tinkerer with the software yourself? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm way deep in. Uh, I used to be, I should say, way deep into Max programming. At the moment, I don't I don't do any programming, but uh, I was a Max Wiz for sure, and I mean, I. I, I I spent my youth in uh, patching. Sure. It's it's interesting that um, you have sort of this one side of uh, Ableton Live that's letting people get even deeper into their machines, uh, into their into their laptops, into their computers. But then on the other end, you have sort of this other project that's taking people out of their computers a little bit. The push project. Um, talk to me about how that all came together. What was the idea? I think you just summarized it in your intro, exactly this, to take people out of their computer. Like, how do you, how do you prevent the frequent distraction that we see happen by detail and also by out, uh, influence from the outer world? You know, I mean, Outlook pop-ups or chat stuff or whatnot all happens on your computer screen. I mean, it's really not quite in our control. And we felt there's an element of physicality to the whole process that we can't no longer ignore. For example, when I go see people in the studios, I always look at what's their posture. And most everybody's most of the time set. And it, I can see that uh, that makes sense for what they're doing and the ergonomics how they have placed things and so it, they need to sit. But I believe firmly that while set, you're going to be making a specific kind of music and you are certainly subconsciously influenced by that, just by the posture. And we were interested in like the simple lever of what happens if you make them stand. Will they make different stuff? And I think they do. So that was sort of maybe idea one create a device that would get people to stand up when they're making music. What were some of the other like kind of constraints or um, criteria that you wanted to hit with this device? We tried something a little that maybe you might, you, you, you could say an illusion de grandeur. It was about everything. You can make everything with this. And, you know, in terms of what, what types of sounds, what function in the song, everything, like you could... Uh, you could ad address every aspect from rhythm to melody to harmony to sound to composition. And I mean, at some level to some, 
to some level of detail, but not beyond. So it was really conceived of as a self-contained uh, environment for making music all the way through, or I'll say material all the way through, that would not suck you into the computer and the exposure to all the endless possibilities. It's almost like a departure from the world of endless possibilities. Mm. I read at some point, uh, you said that you you didn't want to give people endless options. You sort of wanted to create, you, you wanted to take a stand and say, this is how something should be done. Um, it almost sounds like you, you, you were trying to create an instrument rather than a controller. I mean, do, do you see a difference between the two devices? Well, I guess a controller by definition is a piece of accessory for controlling something else. And with this, the idea was much more, it is all you got. And you have to think of the computer as an engine at this point. And sure, you'll be lucky to find your material in your DAW of choice once done, but that's a positive side effect. Other than that, we were looking at making it a engine that's hidden and to embrace the idea of constraint and indeed that's I think the strongest uh, part of the instrument metaphor an instrument is essentially a set of constraints and different people will choose for different reasons different instruments and different sets of constraints because they inspire them it's interesting how it actually is limitation that drives inspiration rather than uh, the absence of limitation oftentimes. I think that has something to do with our brain's uh, capacity. I mean, you can, only f you can only deal with so many decisions that you need to be making at a given time to get, to get anything done. And that's where the benefit of limitation comes in. So in a way, with PUSH, we are taking a benign dictatorship stance on why don't you try making music like this and see if you like it. It's interesting what you say about limitations because part of the Ableton Live paradigm sort of from the beginning were that there were so few limitations. You could really take it in any direction. I wonder if push is in a way sort of a, a correction for that, uh, a way of saying, okay, maybe there should be some limitations on, on how you use this software. I think it's like... And the fascinating thing is the ends of, of the spectrum, like Max, as you said in the beginning, is the embodiment of no limitation. I mean, it's almost like you're soldering your chip and pushes on the other end of the spectrum. And somehow our uh, fascination is to cover that whole way and let people pick their place in between. I mean, if you, if you so desire, you're going to make your own push software in Max for Life. And it, it's actually relatively easy to do. I mean, I'm, I'm saying relatively, you know, you'll still spend a lot of time doing it, but I mean, it's being done. And maybe you end up with something completely unique, a different set of limitations, a different set of constraints that better cater to your own music making than what we could come up with. So I think it's that spectrum that's fascinating to us. It's obviously early days with the push. It's only been out for a couple of months now. Um, but 
what has the response been to, to sort of this new device, this new way of working with Ableton, this new set of constraints? And so far, it's been uh, tremendous. We've, it's been so good that we have been in, uh, uh, we've been thrown into a different type of problem that we haven't known before, which is that we can't supply and we have to uh, tell people to wait. And that's tough. So we're dealing with this as good as we can and and we are working hard to overcome it but it really has uh it has been shocking i think we somehow ended up in a lucky time to do the right thing and it was extremely popular from the from the beginning so i'm very curious to see how it goes on because again like with life in the beginning you can't know what will happen what people will do I saw some very promising early uh, things at uh, encounters with push users, like even before it was e it was even out in the public and uh, as a product, I could see from people that had it in early beta stages, very different kinds of things that they would do than they would otherwise do. And it was already like, yeah, that's that's happening. That's fascinating. Do you have any examples of that? Uh, I just, I remember like, um, at uh, the uh, launch event in Los Angeles and there's these demo stations that we've set up and I just go to the restroom and while on the restroom think I want to know what that music is that's playing and I go out and I see it comes from one of these demo stations and it's a beat that somebody just dialed in right there and then and I'm thinking that's amazing I want to know how they did it and I ask them and they make another one right there and it's like instantaneously it's so fast and i like what they do and they move on to make another one and it's the speed the the simple uh, speed of someone that's had what like a couple of days of time with this and in, in, in developing a sense of virtuosity that uh, stunned me the ability to develop a virtuosity at something that isn't really an instrument that looks like other instruments is is kind of that's kind of an interesting idea. I, I know that something, something that I've read about about the push is that you you guys wanted it to be an instrument, but you wanted it to be something that you didn't have to be a musician in the traditional sense to use. What what were some of the design considerations to make that possible? One important element, and uh, also one major headache all along, was the specific response of the pads. Issues like how can you make pads sensitive enough, yet at the same time dynamic? So you want uh, the same pad to respond to being hit heavily for a drumming situation and to be played super soft for when the person is doing something that's more, let's say, melodic. And that was a major challenge and also uh, very much of a... Uh, novelty even for the folks at Akai who worked with us on this because they came from the MPC tradition and on an MPC you're drumming so you're really not at the same level of sensitivity yet so this was something that we worked on very hard and long with them. Um, do you see the push as sort of an expansion of Ableton then? Is, is this sort of not just a thing that goes along with the software but a thing that takes the software to someplace someplace else 
we are thinking of it as our second product in a way because for many reasons someone that's deep into music and music making might pick up push but not live for example if you're just really uh, proficient in some other software program why would you bother i mean you could you could maybe not expect enough from picking up yet another piece of software but this is a different thing it's about virtuosity instrumentness and so on and so we can see that definitely people might uh, join the ableton club that would otherwise never have i think it's it's going to be uh, interesting how push will succeed in its own right and without the uh, added benefits that it receives through life which of course are major you say that this is sort of ableton's second product in a way is there a difference between managing a software product and managing a hardware project has has this caused has this caused you guys to adjust the differences are tremendous for example you have the issue with supply that i mentioned i mean it's something that uh, our friends at akai spend a whole lot of the energy dealing with how do you get the right components and pieces sourced and so on on time that's a big deal and then also if you're making hardware you're you're forced to making decisions at a point in time that you are maybe not entirely comfortable and in software if it's almost like you can defer indefinitely and you you never really have to commit all the way because you know it's software but in in hardware you have uh a project schedule that will say if that's the time you want to come out then you'll have to make a call on this question now and then you must decide do you rather defer the whole thing or do you just do your best to make the decision now yeah i mean with software um if you need to add an extra an extra knob you just have a software update but you can't you can't really do that with a piece of hardware exactly so we we were definitely on the conservative side like we rather you know we rather delayed than making bad decisions but there was some level of i'll say a foresight necessary and i'm very happy that it worked out i mean we don't have any major issues that we now look at and think oh man we wish we had you know made the decision differently but i now understand the weird sometimes weird appearance of hardware products like in my car there are two buttons that do nothing as far as i can tell i think that's why they're there somebody had to make a call and they just didn't get it right on these two buttons are there are there any sort of um points of expansion built into uh built into the push are are there a couple of buttons on there that don't do anything yet that that could do something in the future at the moment if you take the thing apart and go through each button and each element you will find meaning and i think it doesn't leave any room for interpretation so to say there's one button that says user mode and this is for everything else and that's you know the gateway to scripts and macs and what not and i mean this is where people start to intrude now but other than that it's all pretty uh, it's pretty consistent you said earlier that um The Ableton Live experience now almost exists on this continuum from Max for live at the one end where you can really make the software do anything that that you want it to do 
At the other end, you have push. Um, all of Ableton sort of seems to live within this continuum. And I wonder maybe what's what's next? Like sort of what what is something on the horizon that could maybe push this continuum out? Well, you know, as a matter of uh, principle, uh, we've learned the hard way. We shall never speak about the future and, and, and plans and so. I can just relate where we are now to where I personally come from. I've, I've learned the the trade of electronic music on what's, what was called a Studio 440. That was like uh, at the same time as the MPC. And my that was my early exposure to a electronic instrument that's like a very fixed and con self-contained piece of uh, gear to and that guided your process in many ways and i loved it i thought it was incredibly powerful and then i got exposed to max which was representing the opposite side of the of the spectrum and i have also experienced many other things all, all, all along and there's so much to do so i'm you know i'm i'm not uh, i'm not worried about a lack of inspiration yeah maybe instead of talking about um or instead of asking about the the future of ableton specifically um i i wonder maybe what your take is on on electronic music making uh this production process this live performance process and this djing process that's all sort of come together do you see any 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 issues any any problems that maybe still need to be tackled in that process um in the way that push got people outside of the computer, is there something that that you think we could still be getting people outside of? I I feel that uh, growing concern in well, I guess the world, you know, not just in this niche and pocket, is distraction. I mean, I find it hard to keep focus, and I I make it a conscious goal and practice in my lifestyle to shut myself off from many, many influences. Like, you know, I don't own a TV. I very much restrict what I'm doing on the web because I want to be on top of my input because I know I can only deal with so much and still produce anything meaningful. And I know that that's a very tough challenge. And I know that, uh, you know, my kid will have to deal with this on a different order of magnitude. And I also think when I'm relating this to our audience, who are, I'll say, passionate musicians, they, are, they too must be dealing with this. And it's a challenge. Like, your creativity becomes fragmented. And how do you deal with this in such a way that it isn't a disadvantage, but that you can turn it into a strength? I think that's a interesting topic that you know will need an answer. I like the idea of of taking that distraction and turning it into a strength. H have you had any ideas on that front so far? Yes, but I will not share them. <laughs> <laughs> um, kind of going back to the beginning, um, before Ableton sort of became what I would imagine is the main focus in your life. Uh, you were an electronic musician. Ableton in some ways sort of grew out of Monolake, which is the group that you were part of with Robert Henke. Um, are, are you still making any music? I'm noodling, but I would not, you know, publish anything. I mean, it's not the focus of my 
activity simply and um, not having that ambition at the moment. Do you sort of miss that that part of your life um, being sort of, as you said before, um, you kind of went through the, the the sort of electronic music making making game. Do you do you wish you were still more involved in that? It's okay. I mean, you you only live once probably, and you have to pick your battle. And I think it's it's fine the way it turned out. It's also meaningful that Robert went on to academia and to teach because he really must multiply his knowledge. It's his uh, mission and beyond his uh, creative work, make sure that he gets enough uh, people inspired through this. I think you, you just have to deal with the restrictions of time and, and you know your limited time span. So I think it's it's okay. I think I've found a better place in the world than, you know, behind decks, uh, which some other path might have taken me. What do you think the influence uh, of your time as an electronic musician has been on this sort of massive project that you've taken on since? I, I would say there would be no Ableton otherwise. It's clearly everything comes out of that nucleus of initial experience. I would say I had just enough exposure to be able to translate whatever I hear now into something that I that makes sense. Like otherwise I would I would just have a hard time making sense of what they're saying because this is an area that you can't quite study as well as others. I mean like if you're in the business of making kitchen gear I think I guess you don't have to be a cook but if you're in the business of making musical instruments at some level you have to be a musician 